0: we tend to do better when we're willing to look like we're not perfect. And researchers, in fact, had people go into job interviews and deliver a perfect interview and go into job interviews and then do that same interview, but accidentally spill coffee or papers or like drop some papers. And it turns out those people ranked higher because when we're willing to look a little imperfect, we're more human and more approachable and you can connect with them. And so if I can make any recommendation, it's... Don't try to look perfect, try to be human, because that's what will actually get people to trust you.
1: That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high achieving people. So on this podcast, we're gonna learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. John Levy is a behavioral scientist best known for his work in human connection. His clients range from Fortune 500 brands to startups. He is also the author of the newly released New York Times bestseller, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. In it, John explores how our ability to impact anything from longevity and business to social causes are a byproduct of our relationships, trust, and a sense of belonging. More than a decade ago, John founded The Influencers Dinner, a secret dining experience for industry leaders. Guests cook dinner together, but can't discuss their career or give their last name. And once seated to eat, they play a game to reveal who they are. I love this concept. Of course, my background's in the experiential industry, and I wanted to learn more. This was an absolutely mind-blowing interview with John as he details the importance of forming authentic relationships. These lessons from John are ones we can all use in our business lives and beyond. I love talking with really smart people like John, although I tend to feel pretty stupid. But I began by asking John how this all started and how we got into behavioral science and studying relationships.
0: i I've- two parents that are artists. One's a painter and sculptor. The other one's a composer and conductor. So it was essentially a recipe for not fitting in and getting made fun of. Uh, <laughs> like my father would show up in like, he's also mixed race, right? So we, he's got like a kind of Afro and covered paint covered overalls. And, uh, the kids were like, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to make fun of it. And, uh, and I was also really, really geeky. Before being geeky was cool. Now, like, people like us can geek out and everybody's into it, right? They love Marvel movies. They love science. They love computers and technology. Back then, not okay.
1: Yeah, you so, grew up at the wrong time. I hear you. Oh, my yeah. God. If I was born, like, <laughs> 20 years
0: later, I'd have been the coolest kid in college. I keep telling myself. Well, I'm you're
1: the coolest that. guy now. So that's why we're talking to you. <laughs> wow. I Finally, have arrived. Yes.
0: So, essentially, I grew up incredibly unpopular, made fun of a lot. And it was kind of weird because you watch TV and you see like, I'm going to so date myself right now, shows like Saved by the Bell, right? Or uh, Beverly Hills 902 or any of these. And like, everybody has their social circle and they're all cool. And I'm like, why not me? And so I, uh, being a geek, I was like, okay, maybe science is the answer. And I ended up becoming a behavioral scientist, hoping that maybe I could make some friends.
1: So is that really true? Is that how you became a behavioral science? Is that what really started to get you interested in learning more? So the funny thing is that nothing's ever such like a straight
0: line in any success, right? It's you kind of piece together a story when you look back at things. But if you really look at my life, the kind of those big moments were me not fitting in to a large degree and trying to understand what made that kid popular, but not me. Why would somebody accept that person's invitation to hang out or go on a date? But why not mine? And I think that it's kind of Esther Perel, the famed psychologist, likes to say it's a bit of a revenge of the nerds, right? Like I spent so many years not fitting in now that I kind of know the behavioral science. I get to surround myself with interesting people.
1: It is really interesting to think about that and and why someone chooses a career path. And I could imagine, was that very difficult for you as oh, a I kid? I know you're kind of... Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you know, it's kind of interesting looking back, I saw that a lot of people were lonely, but at the time it kind of occurred to me that it was just a me thing. And in fact, like just to share some kind of crazy research about American society in 1985, the average American had just about three friends besides family by 2004, right? This is pre major social media, pre like modern internet, as we use it now, we were down to two just about. So in less than a generation, we lost a third of our social ties. And that's insanity. And now people sheltering at home, physically distancing from one another, we're seeing that that's probably even a lower number. And when I was researching my new book, You're Invited, I came across something really, really startling, but not necessarily surprising, which is that when you look across any major marker of success that we care about, so human longevity. The greatest predictors aren't that Pilates class that you can take down the street or going to Jamba Juice and eating, you know, like greens or whatever. The greatest predictor, number two, is strong social ties. So close friends and family. And number one is social integration, which is kind of counted by the number of people you come in contact with. that's it's essentially if you have a sense of belonging or community is the way I see it.
1: Can you explain that social? I'm sorry, go ahead. Keep going please. I was going to say social, you know, I totally understand from an aspect and I'm a huge believer, especially this COVID did a number on me personally. I Mm. launched a business during it. It was extremely hard, but it is, you know, even today with how we're working and and hybrid, even doing this podcast, right? We're doing it virtually where you're in the same city as me. We could be doing this in person has been Mm. incredibly isolating and left me with definite feelings of, of depression, but yeah. what that I understand what, so the social integration. So that's number one. What, can you explain that a little bit further? So the way that the research
0: is, this is a Brigham uh, Young study that I think is brilliant. They looked at a whole slew of characteristics. I think people were married, happiness, like all that kind of stuff and tracked people over the course of years and really looked at what predicted if they'll live a long time. So on the low end, it was like, do you exercise? Do you get your flu shot? Did you quit? Drinking is really important. Did you quit? Smoking is really important. And then it was these two. And obviously like genetics is up is really, really number one, but we can't control that. We can control if we hang out with people or not. But what we know is that when we're lonely, it creates a state of anxiety. And that puts a significant amount of stress on your immune system. So it lowers your immune system, reduces our sleep generally, and makes us less focused and less alert. And that kind of stress over time really wears on the heart and your vascular system. So there's that, I think it was called the Farmingham study that looked at this small town of those was really integrated. Everybody was friends with each other, but they had very high levels of cholesterol. Everybody was overweight, but the effect of social connection was so profound that it actually mitigated all those characteristics. The next generation, though, that went off to college and separated and moved away from home, they all had the standard American like heart attack rates and mortality rates. And So some people have referred to this as the rabbit effect, and there's a great book on the topic, but essentially when people experience love, compassion, they feel like a sense of belonging, it actually mitigates all those stress responses that shorten our life and inflammation and things like
1: that. I totally can understand that and realize that having lived through it, especially in business. And my question to you is we need connection, right? And Mm -hmm. you're talking about it here. How do you see with this potential, I guess we don't know, but potential new type of work environment where it's hybrid and and there is a lot of isolation. There's not a lot more of everyone being in on the same day. Is this kind of a ticking time bomb? So I think that there's a lot of problems here. So let's take a quick look at some
0: kind of crazy research. There's a researcher by the name of Paul J. Zach. He's kind of famous for studying oxytocin, a cuddle chemical or the trust molecule. And he found that you can track employee sick days, profitability, and company stock value to the level of trust in an organization. The fact is, trust is really hard to build in a significant way at distance. It's possible. It's just really, really hard. And so let's take a look at the potential side effects, right? The first thing is that there's something called the Allen curve. The Allen curve says that human beings communicate exponentially more the closer their desks are. So if our desks are next to each other, not only will we talk more, we'll text more, we'll email, we're going to be integrated further into one another's lives. That reduces significantly. And by the time you're like 50 meters apart, you might as well really never see each other. So if we're physically distanced from each other and never bump into each other at the office anymore, then that causes two things. One is a lack of familiarity. And human beings have something called the mere exposure effect. It says that, The more often we see something, the more we tend to like and trust it. So the weirdest version of this is the most familiar thing to us is us. So the more similar somebody looks to like us or has characteristics us, the more likely we're going to date them down. uh, I did a study where we found if you have the same initials, you're more than 11% more likely to date.
1: That's crazy. (laughs)
0: yeah so like <laughs> but that's just exposure, right? We hear our names often. It sounds familiar. We like it. It's how we can hear our name in a crowd, all that kind of stuff. So if we're not around each other and there's no familiarity, then trust is going to be fundamentally reduced. And if trust is reduced, so is belonging. So if I'm sitting at home, I never bump into anybody. There's no sense of other divisions, groups, opportunities. There's no collaboration taking place unless companies get really intentional about introducing people from different sides of the organization. And so if you look at a company like Pixar, the CEO's biggest, or not biggest complaint, but one of the complaints about their building is that the hallways aren't big enough to lead to more collisions, right? That the common spaces aren't, there isn't enough of it necessarily to lead to people meeting in the way that he wants them to. Because when you're dealing with a problem, realizing that you can speak to different people, diversity of thinking and ideas and getting feedback is critical. So I think one issue is that as distance increases, it's harder to build trust. The second is, let's say you're the employee that's remote. You have kids, you stay at home, you take care of them. In a competitive environment, like let's say Amazon, right? Highly competitive environment. People are really, really driven. If you're showing up one day a week and somebody else is showing up four days a week and gets so much more time with the boss, that mere exposure effect. Will have you top or that whoever comes in more top of mind and more likely to get the promotion and the bonus. So even if you say, oh no, it's not important, I like it when people stay home, you're not going to be able to pretend that, like you can pretend as much as you want, but it's going to fundamentally affect your rankings when it's time to check those boxes. So I think that what we're facing is that one, it's going to be really hard to put that genie back in the, the box, right? Or whatever it's called, the lamp. The second is that we're going to get have to get really, really clever and good at mitigating these problems because some people will never physically return to the office. And if we want to retain talent, then we're going to need to give people a sense of belonging. Otherwise, the next company that offers them more money, what does it matter if you're working for Pixar or for, I don't know, whatever, ILM, if you're sitting at home at a workstation answering emails all day? so uh belonging is really going to make the difference i think for retention and keeping talent motivated
1: so it's kind of interesting because i know today you're hearing about a lot of people choosing to go to companies you know that have this kind of hybrid model or ability to work from home and there's some companies that are like hey you have to be in the office notably a lot of these investment banks here in new york oh, yeah. like j p morgan and and goldman so over the long term even though Some of these companies are giving the benefits of hybrid work. It sounds like over the long term, that actually might be a negative effect for those businesses.
0: So I think the key about behavioral scientists or rather behavioral science is to understand that it works on 10,000 people, not one. So I can say, all right, you are a remote worker. You're incredibly talented. I'm not going to be able to find a video editor like you anywhere at the price that you're asking because you live in Bali. Great. Then be the remote video editor, right? You don't have to be at every meeting. I could just send you notes. It's like, it'll work, right? That's where I'm less concerned. Where I'm more concerned is, I'm going to get this statistic wrong. I think it was African-American knowledge workers, like architects, IT, right? Consultants were seven times more likely to want to stay home than their white counterparts. I think it was 3% and 21% in a study done by future forward. And the concern there is, okay, we're finally making progress towards some kind of equity within the workplace. It's nowhere near what it needs to be. But then if for whatever reason, the African-American workforce is saying, okay, we feel more comfortable being at home, then we're once again back in segregation, right? Now, this creates a huge problem for companies. If I say, no, you can't be at home, is it a racist uh, policy or white supremacist, because that's what the white employees want, to be in the office more? Or is it, or do we have to really understand what the situation is? Because if out of sight, out of mind means that, okay, now more white employees are going to get promotions and African-American employees are going to be overlooked because they're not around, are we doing more damage than good? These things are really complex and we don't know why, right? Is it that there's a cultural issue that African-Americans prefer to be with their families more than their white counterparts? Is it because of redlining that they are in have a further commute and it's not an equal setting in where they live? So these things are really, really complex. And just saying, oh, is it good or bad? Who knows? But what I can say is that most companies aren't taking into account Actually, how complex these things are because they'll say, "Great, you can work from home," and then people are lasting two years, and their cost of hiring shoots through the roof because it's so easy to just jump to another company when nobody feels connected to the company or their coworkers.
1: Yeah, that that's a great point. You know, if you're completely hybrid, and, and I'm a great example of this because I, I just started a business, a, a actual podcast platform. One of the things we do is branded podcasts for a lot of companies. And we've been really busy because podcasting, as we're listening to a podcast now, is a great way to communicate internally with your entire company and ways to reach people within your company when when they want to listen, right? They just throw on mm-hmm. their AirPods and and it's a great way to keep connected. But I'm really curious, Justin, in terms of employees now, and, and you brought up that point, like if there's no connection after two years, it's like, I really never had that connection. It's so easy to jump to another company because yeah. there's, right? There's no...
0: Now the metrics will be like, okay, more vacation days, maybe more pay. Okay. well, does it matter if I'm filing TPS reports from here or somewhere for them or someone else? And so I think we need to really understand what trust is made out of and how what actually triggers it. And it actually works the opposite of the way corporate America treats you, which is really funny. So have you ever like you're meeting with a company that wants your business? They take you out for like a nice dinner. And has
1: that ever happened to you? Uh, usually it's the other way around with me. I'm on the okay. sales side, but that would be nice. But yes, it happens once in a while.
0: Now, often those dinners are really awkward and they work just well enough to justify continuously doing them. But they're not exactly like the best investment of time and effort, to be honest. And the other thing companies will often do is like parties with swag bags. And they say like, oh, here, you throw this out for me, right? Like nobody wants the swag bag or they get re-gifted. So clearly that doesn't work which raises the question of what does. And the answer is a really intimate gift. When I say intimate, I don't mean like lingerie. I mean, one that's particular to you. So I know you live on the Upper West Side. You might be a huge fan of bagels from Zaybars. I know that you have a bunch of guests coming to stay at your house. So I'll have a delivery of Zaybars come to your home with a whole spread so you can host people. That's like, then you go, oh, wow, John's so thoughtful. That's like something I actually need or value. Now, that doesn't scale very well. Like I can't do that with an entire company, What does work though, is the exact opposite. (laughs) It's called the Ikea effect. And it states that we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because it's a pain to assemble. So anything we put effort into, we care about more, which means that our objective should be not how do I win you over with like a Starbucks gift card on your one year anniversary but how do I get you to invest effort into me and our relationship or our brand? Whether you're a customer, I want you to invest effort. Or if you're an employee, I want you to invest effort into one another. Because that'll be what actually gets you to care about one another.
1: I was going to say, so how do you get a customer to invest into you?
0: So I would argue that it your best bet is something I call stacking. And that is that if I were to stop you on the street, and this was an actual experiment, and ask you for directions, you probably wouldn't give them to me. I mean, like you're a nice guy, maybe you would, but like most people don't. But if I first ask you for the time and then ask you for the directions, you will, most likely. And this is weird because I've now asked you for far more, right? I've asked you for time and directions and you've given it to me versus just the directions. And that's a weird quirk of human behavior, which is that once I'm viewed as somebody worthy of effort, I'm viewed as worthy of more effort. So it's not about not bothering or not interrupting or whatever it is, the customer or the person. It's about finding ways to get them to put in a small amount of effort and then asking for more. So if I call up or shoot an email to a potential client, I say, hey, I just saw your interview on A, B, and C, whatever it is. I loved what you said. Is there a book you recommend? Super low lift. Oh, I love Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. a few weeks later, hey, I absolutely love that book. Do you have any others? Or, hey, I really see how you applied these ideas in your career. Can we chat about it for a few minutes? Now I'm viewed as the person who's already in, uh, who's been invested effort into, they must care about the relationship so they're more likely to invest more. And that's fundamentally different than what most people view it as. Most people say, oh, I'm going to send them something, a gift or whatever. Most of us don't value those gifts. We definitely don't value them as much as you spend on them. There's often a gap, like you spend 100 bucks, we value it at $10. But for human connection, or rather for human beings, connection and belonging is at the core of our species. We survive not because we're the fastest or the strongest, but because we can work together. And when we invest effort,
1: that supports social bonds. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. You know, when it comes to your next business read you do have options. You could pick up that trendy new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless buzzword-free lessons of a straightforward modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real-world track record of decade upon decade of actual exponential business growth. Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. And we're back. For a business now, how, you know, and you mentioned trust and this connection. What are ways companies can really create that type of environment in mm. a hybrid system?
0: So I'm going to share two ideas. One is uh, understanding what trust is actually made of, because it's It's hard to understand how it works without understanding its components. Researchers generally agree it's made of three things. Some say four, but I think that it's much easier to discuss it as three. And that is competence, your ability to do something. Honesty, that you're truthful. And the third is benevolence, that you have other people's best interests at heart. Now, the weird thing is not all are equal. If somebody screws up one day at work, but they have a great track record, we let it slide. We don't even think about it that much. So, breach incompetence, not a big deal. But if somebody lies to you, you begin to doubt everything they say or have said, right? So, we can clearly see that honesty is valued more than competence. Not that competence is irrelevant, it's just the ranking. But there's this weird loophole, and it works like this Me and you are walking down the street up here on the Upper West Side. You say, John, can we quickly just stop by a friend's house? I need to pick something up. I'm like, yeah, of course. And as we enter, 40 of my closest friends jump out and scream, surprise, happy birthday. Now, if I turn to you and say, you just lied to me, we can't be friends anymore. You would be beyond confused.
1: And why is that? Well, you think you were doing a nice thing, right? Yeah. And setting you up, sort of like my wife threw me a surprise party this year for my uh, big 5-0. So anyway, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> so yeah, it's because it was benevolent, right? Right. So you can see we value benevolence above honesty and mm. honesty above competence. Yeah. Here's the problem. Everybody leads with, not everybody, but like essentially everybody leads with competence rather than benevolence. So like I'm selling you a product and I say, our computer servers are up 99.9% of the time. You're like, oh, wow, that's really impressive. That's competence. Benevolence is, Robert, I know that for you, your computer systems, your ability to have your podcasts live defines your reputation your customer's reputation, and your ability to succeed. And I know we cannot put that at any risk. I'm going to make sure that you're on our most secure servers. And I'm going to give you my personal phone number. Day and night, if there's an issue, I want you to know that you have somebody you can contact who's an advocate for you, whatever you need. Now, one was leading with competence. The other one was leading with benevolence. And they felt fundamentally different, right? In one case, you're like, oh, that seems reliable. And the other is, this guy gets me. I can trust him. Yeah, and so. The first thing is we need to lead with benevolence, whether it's we're dealing with our customers or our employees. That doesn't mean that you can necessarily, like you can't be incompetent and let the company fall apart, right? And just give everybody all the money, whatever, right? But it means that that's the context for it, the basis of our communications and interactions. The second then is let's find ways for people to interact and invest effort into each other. So rather than like drunken happy hours that don't really promote a healthy company culture necessarily or any meaningful connection. It's often, if you hop on one of these Zoom happy hours, it's usually like the extrovert talking ad nauseum and everybody's like, okay, we've done this four times. We have to keep doing this. We want to find activities that are actually interesting, playful, reduce stress and increase bonding. So I love things like games, puzzles, activities, even challenges, but play is really important because it promotes Two things, especially when you're working together as a team, you get that IKEA effect. If I take a team of 25, split us up into four subgroups in breakout rooms and pose a challenge, now suddenly we're playing and we're investing effort into each other. You can meet people from across the company in a really playful, fun way and bond with them more in 10 minutes in a breakout room than you would in weeks working on a project together because of something called vulnerability loops. Now, I want to emphasize. This isn't going to work for everybody. Like there's always going to be a few employees who are just like, I don't want to play games. I don't care about this. I just want to get my work done. Stop bothering me. I have things to take care of. Granted, but our objective isn't necessarily like 100% every time. We need to do what works for most people to really keep them engaged and build a company culture.
1: Is that fair? That is. It it makes perfect sense. And especially being an entrepreneur myself, having a few companies, I've liked to think I've been able to lead that way with trust mm-hmm. first and in doing things in a benevolent way especially with clients and i loved how you talked about here's my phone number here and i've stressed that that's like you said what really can build a relationship and i've been fortunate to, to, enough to have relationships that have gone back 25 plus years three different businesses because of that and to me i never heard it like this but i'm sure that's that's why in those cases i want to jump into your your new book you're invited the art and science of Cultivating influence. And, you know, I think when people hear influence today, they think of who's liking my influence. Avocado Instagram toast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and exactly. Every, everyone no, eats The book that, is yeah.
0: mostly me in a bikini promoting avocado <laughs> toast. You're
1: I don't know if wild. people are going to buy that, John. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> but they certainly are buying your book. I see that. That's for sure. So, can you talk to me? What does that exactly mean? What's the book about?
0: So, here's what I kind of had to face is that if you read most books, right? If I, look at uh, Bill Gates's autobiography. And I go, okay, I've taken a bunch of life lessons. I'm going to duplicate what Bill Gates did. I'm not going to get his results. Most advice out there is work for one person in one point in time with that specific skill set and knowledge. And so I was really curious, what would give me an ability to impact my life that's universal? And when I say influence, yeah, I have a ton of respect for people who can create Large audiences and great content and things that are really engaging. That's not necessary. Like I'm not the social media person. The kind of influence I mean is getting a client to call you back, or uh, your boss to take your ideas seriously, or your kids to eat a healthy meal. It's the ability to have an impact on an outcome or a person, and that really comes down to three things. The first is connection, who we're connected to, because if you're not connected to someone, it's really hard to influence them. The second is trust. And we've discussed a lot of these ideas that are in the book and I break them down further because if somebody doesn't trust you, they're not going to opt in to be influenced. And the third is sense of belonging. We kind of discussed this, but essentially when you are part of a community, ideas spread faster, right? People are closer to you, the more social ties you share. And so you have a greater impact. And so my general belief is that if you can connect with anybody, build trust quickly. And give them a sense of belonging so they want to stick around and be in your circle. Your only limitation on your influence is what you want to accomplish. And sometimes it takes a while for people to figure that out, granted. But
1: in the meantime, at least you have really great relationships with the people you admire. Yeah. When you talk about the first thing you said was you need to be connected, what What do you mean by that?
0: So in our society, the way we tend to do connecting like, or so the two of us just met, right? We had a bit of a rapport. Most of the time we connect with people who have a shared background of some kind, either it's a shared friend or interest culture. Maybe it's activities like we'll both play soccer or something. And that's really natural to bond over an activity. The problem is that when you don't have a common ground with someone, people's solution is networking. And networking is literally the worst. <laughs> if you look at the research, Francesca Gino at Harvard Business School did this phenomenal study that looked at people's implicit association, right? Like when you think networking, how do you feel about it? And people feel dirty and wanting to wash. Now, we don't feel that way about making friends. In fact, it doesn't matter how introverted or extroverted you are. Almost everybody likes having friends. And so the question is, what'll actually cause us to become friends with a stranger? Not only that. And here's a more important question. Most businesses think it's about getting people's attention. It's not. It's actually about getting their interest. Attention is easy. You could just set off fireworks, they'll get people's attention. That doesn't mean they'll be interested in interacting with you or finding out more about your products or services. And so the cues in the human brain that actually trigger interests are different. There are things like novelty, right? When something stands out as different, the brain literally responds relative to how novel something is and induces a state where we want to explore and understand or if you can create curiosity people think like oh curiosity how wonderful no curiosity is like an itch you can't scratch it's kind of annoying right like you, it's like something just at the tip of your tongue right you need the answer and but if you can create curiosity then it creates this desire to find the answer and engage with you so there are all these triggers that you can kind of use to engage people in fun ways The way that I personally do it is I created a secret dining experience. Uh, 12 people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, they get to guess what everybody does. And they find out that it's a Nobel laureate sitting next to an Olympian, next to the CEO of a fortune 500 company and so on and so forth. We posted over 2000 people at 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries but you can see it's highly novel, right? You're not going to find a format like that anywhere else. And it creates curiosity about who's going to be there and who you get to hang out with. And so we figured out how to trigger all these things in a really kind of positive, wholesome way.
1: Personally, these dinners, they sound extremely interesting. Something that I think anyone would love to be invited to meet all these different unique types of people. But what was the impetus for you to start these dinners?
0: So there were two kind of interesting things. One is I was sitting in a seminar and the seminar leader said that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. I said, if that's true, then maybe I'm taking my approach to success completely wrong, right? If I want to work out, I've been setting alarms for like 6am to go to the gym and hitting snooze a hundred times. So might be easier just to surround myself with people who exercise a lot, like fitness professionals, and then it'll be naturally part of my routine. And I wanted to know if that was true. So I ended up coming across a study by these two guys, Christakis and Fowler. They were curious about the obesity epidemic. Is it the kind of epidemic that spreads from person to person like a cold or coronavirus? Or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's? You don't get Alzheimer's because you shake hands with somebody who has Alzheimer's. And what they found was absolutely startling. If you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Your friends who do not know them have a 20% increased chance of obesity, and their friends, a 5% increase. And this kind of effect is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Literally everything passes through this superorganism we call our network or community. And so I said, huh, if that's true, then it's not just about knowing that one person. I want them to not just have a positive impact on me, but if I could introduce them to other extraordinary people and connect them to each other, that will bring everybody closer together and positively impact one another. And that became my goal, is how do I bring together the most extraordinary people in our culture and simultaneously have a positive impact on everyone involved so that they want to stick around, so they want to be part of a community. That's amazing. That's
1: impressive. Um, oh,
0: thank you. <laughs> I'm a very proud Jewish mother.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I am sure you do. You know, we don't have much time left. I, I wanted to ask you one more question before I let you go. And, um, you know, I'm really interested in this show. A lot of listeners are, are entrepreneurs, business owners. And, you know, if there was one piece of advice or tip I know you would mentioned trust, but if there was one thing you can say when you're getting out there, starting a business, is there any one personality trait or characteristic you can say that is is really important to live Very by?
0: So I'm going to share one more piece of science. The reason the IKEA effect works is because, or at least part of the reason, is something called a vulnerability loop. Now, we tend to think that if I trust you, I'll be willing to be vulnerable, but it actually works the other way around. So once again, the two of us are walking down the street and I say, and I say, Robert, I'm so burned out. This book was the hardest project I've ever worked on in my life. I think I, I don't even know what to do next. In that moment, I've signaled vulnerability. And if you ignore me or make fun of me, trust will be reduced. But if you acknowledge it, And then signal your own vulnerability. Something like, John, I launched a company during COVID. I know how you feel. It's been incredibly difficult, super stressful. Yes, gratifying, but like, this has been a marathon. The moment that I acknowledge that, we have both shown that we could be vulnerable to the same degree and we're safe. And that's how trust is actually built. It's built through vulnerability, which means it's our job to either notice when people are signaling vulnerability and complete it, or if they're not, and it. supports relationship that you want to be trusted it would be about signaling vulnerability first so that they can complete it now this means a few things one is i growing up wanted to prove to everybody that i had it all handled that like i didn't need anybody's help but that means when people were offering me support they were opening a loop and i was stopping it from completing i'd be saying no so the the first thing i would say is if you think that by having it all together and trying to show the world that you are better off you're probably not you're probably reducing the potential trust between you your customers your friends your coworkers all that that doesn't mean you have to talk about your divorce or anything like that it's like that you don't need that kind of vulnerability sit work appropriate stuff oh can i get your opinion on something can i get a few minutes of your time i'm not sure i did this right i want to make sure you're happy with this is this what you were looking for those are all vulnerability loops or openings for them so the second thing is that it means that We tend to do better when we're willing to look like we're not perfect. And researchers, in fact, had people go into job interviews and deliver a perfect interview and go into job interviews and then do that same interview, but accidentally spill coffee or papers or like drop some papers. And it turns out those people ranked higher because when we're willing to look a little imperfect, we're more human and more approachable and you can connect with them. And so, if I can make any recommendation, It's don't try to look perfect, try to be human because that's what will actually get people to trust you. I'm not saying you should look incompetent. I'm saying be willing to be vulnerable and notice other people's vulnerabilities because that's what will build trust.
1: I love that. I'm going to leave it there. I just want to say that I similarly growing up, got it all handled, everything perfect. And it was a long time until I realized that first off, that creates no bond or intimacy with anyone. And when I finally learned how to express my fears or anxiety or my vulnerability, it just opened up a whole world of connections and friendships. And I love your advice here because, you know, I've battled back and forth, like in business, do you want to show someone that side? And I've learned over the years, you're just doing business with people like you and you want to work with people who open up and are vulnerable the same way you create those connections. So thanks for that. I think that's an incredible piece of advice and I am going to hopefully do it more, continue to be open, authentic, transparent, <laughs> <laughs> all of those things. And and John, thank you so much for coming on yeah, uh, HSH. And, and I'll see
0: uh, you at bar sometime. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Or maybe side. I'll be walking you to a surprise birthday party one day. <laughs> Ooh, giveaway. Spoiler. Yeah, away. yeah. 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 In any case, thanks so much. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.